Welcome to the Covenant Experience Podcast. At Covenant, we are growing passionate followers of Jesus Christ who serve all people. If you live in the tri-state area, we welcome you to join us on Sundays at 9 a.m. or 11 a.m. You can find more information about us online at covenantexperience.com or call us at 304-876-2212 with any questions. And now today's message. Good morning, Covenant family. I have good news before we get started uh, with our message today. My name is Joel, by the way, if you're a guest with us or if you're watching from home, and we're going to be in Revelation chapter 18, but uh, after a few months of prayer and search, we have a new pastor of student ministries, and his name is Chris Walls. He's the one who read that awful text to you just a few moments ago. Uh, that we're going to be covering. Actually, you've been catching the short straw with a lot of really bad, like, ooh, you know, kind of biblical texts that make us shudder just a little bit. Uh, You all know Pastor Chris very well. This has been a process of a lot of prayer and a lot of discussion. He is at least initially going to be both transitional and part-time. Most of you know he has a business Uh, And in order for him to dispose of that, it needs to remain profitable. I think those of you in the business community would understand that. And so we're going to give some time and some grace for that transition to come over. Uh, But for the longest time, I think uh, both Amy and I have been talking with with Chris and Michelle uh, about a a possible return to full-time vocational ministry. Uh, Chris has a long history in vocational ministry as a pastor and a church planter and as a youth pastor, so he's got a lot of experience there as well. Uh, And honestly, we kind of thought that at some point that would result in them leaving Covenant to go to another body. and We would do that uh, with with some bittersweetness, you know, kind of sending them out. Had no idea it would end in this way, and so I'm incredibly grateful. Uh, so just be sure and, and just congratulate him today. Speak with he and Michelle and, and the kids. They're all going to be out here in the lower lobby uh, for you a little bit later. We told the teens on Wednesday night, want to tell you guys who are gathered here, and hey, this is what you miss when you're not here. Full, um, uh, the, the full report, so to speak, the announcement goes out tomorrow morning. So welcome back, Pastor Chris. Uh, good to have you with us again. Revelation 18, um, this is, again, we're we're still kind of in the middle of of that, what we might consider, at least initially, to be the bad part of Revelation. I told you at the beginning of this series, Revelation is a book of consummation. It's a book of hope. Uh, It is a book that points us toward a future that is glorious, and it does all of that because ultimately it unveils the glory of Jesus, uh, which is the thing that we can celebrate the most. But I also warned you a couple of weeks ago that we were getting into some texts that were going to be difficult, but that we simply must cover in order to get to the hope. And so I I want to warn you today, just in advance, this is the last and the worst part of that judgment passage, okay? So, So here's the good news. The worst of this concludes today. I'm going to tell you, you need to stick with me through this because you've never seen such a glorious hope as you're going to see once we get beyond this. It's worth it. It's worth it, but we simply must go through the hard stuff. And today may be the hardest at all of all because today we have another vision, and it's the vision of a funeral. And this isn't a funeral for an individual. This is a funeral service for all of human civilization. Anybody in here, don't raise your hands, ever had to go to the funeral of somebody you really didn't like? Yeah. Maybe it was an extended family. I mean, you didn't hate them necessarily, but you're like, eh, do I really need to go? Didn't really love them. Didn't really get along with them all that much. But eh, I'm extended family. I married her brother. All the people at work said, you know, he did have a cubicle here. Maybe we should all go. And so there you sat, ambivalent, thinking to yourself, I'm supposed to be weeping with those who weep here. I'm not exactly sure, though, how I can drum up emotions that I really don't have. I'm I'm not sure how I should feel right now. So we've all had an experience like that, most of us. And then then for the rest of us, we've all had experiences of when true evil passes from the scene. I I remember when Kim Jong-il died, the, the leader of North Korea. And I remember simultaneously feeling sorrow because he was created in God's image and where he likely is and has been and will be for eternity should bring any of us sorrow and simultaneously understanding and believing and affirming that for the world, this is good news. 
You ever felt that? It's this, it creates a juxtaposition in your soul that is tormenting because you're not quite sure what you're supposed to do with all of those emotions inside because when Adolf Hitler's in the coffin, we have to think of the image of God, but we, almost, we also have to admit and actually thank God that evil influence is removed from our midst, but it creates, if our souls are in the right place, an internally jarring experience. Well, today's message is a call toward a similar feeling, a similar disposition. Now, to just remind you of the context, we've already seen four separate curtains pull back. Remember, Revelation is not written in chronological order. It's simply a series of visions. The Holy Spirit is pulling back the veil. He's revealing things to John that John is writing down, a lot of symbolic imagery. And in window number one, we saw Jesus in all of his glory in the midst of his churches. Window number two, we saw Jesus on his throne judging the earth. Window number three, we saw Jesus on his throne over all of history, inaugurated through that big graphic image of the woman and the dragon and the child. We're now in the middle of window number four where we see Jesus as the ultimate judge and we see those judgments ultimately and finally coming. And it is within that curtain that we're going to see this vision of a funeral. And it's the kind of funeral that, again, leaves us wondering how we're supposed to feel because it's a funeral for all of human civilization. Now, there's a lot of particulars in this text where we start arguing with each other sometimes. Lots of ink has been spilled, uh, lots of different ways that this has been understood. And I would refer you again to Steve Gregg's Four Views commentary that is out in the lower lobby if you want to go down that rabbit hole. But the scholarly consensus around this letter is that at a minimum, John, when he uses the phrase Babylon here, means the Roman Empire. You're like, well, why didn't he just come out and say Rome? Because he was a political prisoner of Rome, and Rome didn't have a privacy act. That's why. Okay, and so you want to get this message to the churches, the only way you can get it there is through the government postal system, a government that's going to read your mail. You're going to employ a literary technique called apocalypse in order to get that to them. And when they receive it for century recipients, they're going to understand what it means. And so it, it, that, that all makes sense, given that this was the government under which the churches existed when he wrote the prophecy. But this consensus is likely not the full picture of what's being communicated. Because remember the vision that's been given us before, especially chapters 13 and 14, the beast from the sea, the beast from the earth, the, the mark of the beast, all of that teaching us that every government, every empire that has ever existed will embody what, Roman, what, what the Roman empire did. On the one hand, the, the Romans 13 ideal that government has given to us as a good and a, a God-ordained instrument up to a point. Every government does that. And then after that point, Every government serves the beast. And this vision is one more reminder that every world power eventually bends toward blasphemy. Every single Babylon that has ever or will ever exist, whether it's of the actual Babylonian variety or the Persian variety or the Greek variety or the Roman variety or the barbarian variety or the British variety or the variety that you and I now inherit in this nation called the United States of America will eventually bend toward blasphemy and will eventually, as a result, meet with the judgment of God that will bring it to an end. And we see that now encapsulated in the imagery of a funeral. So if you had a, imagine you had a vision one night and that vision was of a funeral home full of mourners and as you approach the coffin, you notice Uncle Sam's in there. That's what this is for the first century church. It's a signal to these churches that Rome, which is the empire that they're living under, and with Rome, every other empire that ever has or ever will emerge has a death date. God's going to judge it. God's going to bring it to an end. And in light of that reality, here is the call for God's people. We find it in the very first verse that Pastor Chris read at the outset of our time together. Revelation 18, 4. Then I heard another voice from heaven saying, come out of her, my people, lest you take part in her sins, lest you share in her plagues. This is quite simply what we in the Christian community call separation, all right? The call to be holy is a call to be separate. And in the 21st century, even within the church, that concept is about as popular as a Philly steak-laden belch in a crowded elevator. We just don't, no, we don't want to hear about this stuff, all right? 
Talk to me about my best life now. Talk to me about how to have a better marriage. Talk to me about how to juice up my sex life. Don't talk to me about holiness. Don't talk to me about separation. And part of the reason for that is we don't know what separation is. We haven't examined Scripture enough to know exactly what it is. Be separate. But you see this clearly in other prominent places in Scripture. Let me give you a couple of examples. 2 Corinthians chapter 6. Therefore, go out from their midst and be separate from them, says the Lord, and touch no unclean thing. Leviticus 20, 26. You shall be holy to me, for I the Lord am holy, and have separated you from the peoples that you should be mine. There is a time when you must be marked by separation. What does that mean? Well, I understand that we, that we have freedom of conscience. Not everybody draws the line in, uh, uh, in the same place. Sometimes Scripture isn't explicit about exactly what we should do and the circumstances under which we should do it. So I'm not going to prescribe anything for you, but I will tell you in, in the most base of terms what this means at a minimum is that there are times you should walk out of the movie theater. There are times you should walk away from certain kinds of, of lyrics in a song. There are times that you should, with your family, say, we will not be there. We will not partake in that. We will not affirm that. We will not bless that. That's separation. But the issue is, is like, okay, let's not, we, we've got to walk a tightrope here. What is separation? Because if you get this wrong, you're going to tend to swing between one of two extremes. I don't know if you've noticed or not, but our whole nation right now is full of extremes. Okay? And Jesus doesn't want you living on the extreme overreacting to everything, being outraged about everything, being overly dramatic about everything. Jesus wants us to, to have power and love and a sound mind and, and to understand, right? And so you don't want the extreme of legalism on the one hand. You don't want the extreme of libertinism on the other hand. Legalism is like isolation from the culture. Come out and be ye separate means Culture must always be seen as evil. It must always be seen as the enemy. My friend Ed Stetzer puts it this way. You can't live like that. It's not practical. Because if you see culture as the enemy, you're going to always see it as adversarial, and you're going to be screaming at it. And screaming at culture is like screaming at somebody's house. It's just where they live. It's just where you and I live. It has good things in it. It has bad things in it. But you can't just scream at culture. You can't merely be isolated, and you can't... You, you can't recluse yourself, furthermore, into some Christian bubble and protect your family. Too many of y'all have read Noah's Ark's narrative and think that is supposed to describe your family. Yeah, let's just get on the boat and let's be safe while everything around us goes to hell. That's not the picture of the family in the New Testament. That's, that's not the picture. It's somebody convinced you wrongly that if you'll isolate enough, you'll be able to get all the sin. All right. The sinful influence will be gone. Listen, I couldn't protect my family, and I'm your pastor, from sinful influence if I tried because the origin of it ain't out in culture. It's right here. It's in daddy's heart. And so they don't need me isolating them, protecting them, sheltering them, helicoptering over them. They need to see me repent. That's how they learn what it means to follow Jesus. They need to see me just like I did the other week. I went upstairs, and I thought, hey, guys, Dad's made a horrible mistake. I, I've gone several weeks, and I've not prayed with you. I, some nights I was busy. I got home. You were already up here. Some nights I'm binging on some stupid television show, and I didn't even think about it. And Dad's got to make this right. This is important, guys, and I love you, and I'm sorry. Can we pray together? Right? That, that's, that, but isolation leads me to think, well, well, listen, none of that really matters as long as I put them in a Christian school. None of that really matters as long as I keep them away from me. You've got to teach them how to be. Listen, it, Pastor Chris and I have talked about that. Your teenagers are going to learn how to be global citizens in this church. They're growing up in a world where we've got to prepare them for stuff that we don't even know what it is yet. We don't know what's coming. We're, they're growing up in a world where bilingual rather than monolingual, is going to be the norm. They're growing up in a world where they're going to, in the workplace and in every other environment, be rubbing shoulders with followers of other religions and people from other nations and languages. And that's a good thing because it puts those people within the reach of the gospel, if we'll see this the way we should. 
So isolation is not the answer. Capitulation, though, is also not the answer. Capitulation, slowly, slowly just adopt the same values of the culture regardless of what Scripture says. So if I could, if I could put this simply, legalism masquerades as holiness and says Scripture's not enough. We have to add to it. Libertinism masquerades as love and says Scripture sometimes goes too far and we just need to ignore certain parts of it. Okay? Now, how do you navigate between those two extremes? Well, that's a long conversation. That's a case-by-case conversation. Uh, I would commend to you, Richard Niebuhr wrote a book in 1951, have yet to find its equal, called Christ and Culture. Time doesn't permit me to chase that rabbit today, but if you want to read about these things at a deep level, it, it's, I mean, he kind of frames the, the way that Christians have understood how to have this conversation for a half century now. Maybe we can get into the dirty details of that later. But the base def- definition of separation, here's the good news. We don't, we don't have to get into a lot of nuance today. All we have to do is look at the words of Jesus. So look with me at John chapter 17. Here's our base definition. He says, in his high priestly prayer, I do not ask that you take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. That's what it means. Right? Live in the world. Even enjoy some things of the world. Do not be identified as one of the world. That, that's really the question, isn't it? When, when your peers, your coworkers, your classmates, when they look at you, do they see anything at all distinguishable about your life? I mean, does the fact that you would call yourself a Christian in their midst make any distinguishable difference at all? Or are you just like them? Okay? And there's some very clear lines of sin and holiness that we should just understand. I'll give you a couple of examples here. 1 Corinthians 6, do you not know that the unrighteous, those who don't follow Jesus, will not inherit the kingdom of God? And then he goes on to give us a few, not all, it's not an exhaustive list, but a list of some of the repetitive lifestyle characteristics that characterize those who won't inherit the kingdom of God. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, or the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. Now, if you're the kind of person that you, here's the other side of legalism, you're checking a list, and you're like, okay, haven't done that one, haven't done that one, haven't done that one, haven't done that one, I'm, I'm pretty good. Well, let's look at the other one, Romans chapter 1. They were filled with, now we've gone from the external stuff that can be observed to the internal, what's on the inside of you? With all manner of unrighteousness, evil, covetousness, mal- see, this is the stuff you can't get nailed for. Did you realize you can covet your entire life and never be found guilty for it in a court of law? Yeah, there's no way for us to present evidence of it because it's all internal, right? They're full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, maliciousness. They are gossips, slanderers, haters of God, insolent, haughty, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, foolish, faithless, heartless, ruthless. Though they know God's righteous decree that those who practice such things deserve to die, they not only do them, but they press the like button on Facebook when they see it. They give approval to those who practice them. What does that mean? It means that some things are, right? We can have discussions. We can draw the line a different place. I kept some of y'all's kids a couple of years ago, pre-COVID. I was down there with some other dads, and our sisters were upstairs enjoying a great women's ministry meeting, and there must have been 20, 25 kids downstairs, and we were trying to get them quiet because the staff alerted me that moms, especially young moms, don't like picking up young kids that, that look like we've given them three Mountain Dews before we hand them off. And, and so we need, to, we need to make sure the kids are calm. It never occurred to me that a parent might appreciate a calm child. I, I didn't think about that. I, I mean, my baseline when I'm keeping kids is nobody died. We're good, right? That's, that's a dad. That's a dad. That's, that's just a different mindset, right? And, and so we're, <laughs> we're having this discussion. And so we said, all right, here's how we'll get them quiet. We'll show them a movie. And I'm telling you, we didn't even go to Netflix. We went to like Right Now Media. It's all Christian stuff. And we started selecting movies. And the first four, I kid you not, we got three minutes into it and we heard a voice in the dark. My mom and dad don't let me watch this. <sighs> okay, let's see if we can try again. I think on try number four, we finally found something that was acceptable to everybody. That's always going to be the case in the body of Christ. But what we just read reminds us that some things, especially if they're explicitly spelled out in the text of Scripture, are quite simply and universally, regardless of time, place, or culture, off limits if you're going to follow Jesus. 
they're off limits. And that's the call here in verse 4 of chapter 18. Stay away. Don't be linked up with the spirit of the age in a way that makes you indistinguishable from a culture or an empire that I'm eventually going to destroy. Otherwise, you're going to share its fate. So here's what follows. It's a graphic description of the various dimensions of this coming judgment. It is a long, loud warning shot across the bow from the Lord to his people. This is coming. Four descriptions here. And it begins with the reason behind this judgment. Verse 1, she, he's speaking of civilization here. In the immediate context, it's the Roman Empire. Babylon stands again euphemistically for really any and all earthly empires. She has become a dwelling place for demons. That's not a compliment in case you've wondered. A haunt for every unclean spirit. A haunt for every unclean bird. A haunt for every unclean and detestable beast. For all nations have drunk the wine of the passion of her sexual immorality. And the kings of the earth have committed immorality with her. And the merchants of the earth have grown rich from the power of her luxurious living. All right. These are, this is, this is Rome, and this is every other empire. They have fallen in the past. They will fall in the future. The kingdom of this world is becoming the kingdom of our Lord and his Christ. That cannot happen without the unholy things being obliterated. And so it's coming. Why is it coming? Well, because of idolatry. That's what John tells us here. More specifically, it's the worship of three things. Sex, power, and wealth. Sex, power, and wealth. All right. Are you worshiping one of these three things? All right. That because that's what happened. He said, you look around and you see a powerful empire. I had a friend in high school. She was, uh, by the time that she had reached the pinnacle of her career, she was a very well-known psychotherapist in our hometown. She was a wife, she was a mother, she was an athlete, a runner. Everything looked like she's on top of the world. Picture of health as far as we could tell. And then she received a cancer diagnosis, and six weeks later, she was gone. Everything looked good on the outside. But on the inside, probably for months, this very radically moving, aggressive form of cancer was eating away at her. That's the picture we have here on a a civilizational scale. You, You see beauty in the culture. You see splendor and sophistication and art and culture and social life. You look at your civilization, wherever it is, in this case it was Rome, and you see the appearance of progress, and what I'm doing is pulling back the veil and telling you it is in a condition of death because it's being propped up by sex, money, and power. Adultery, fornication, every kind of sexual sin that is getting blessed. Luxurious living that is valued more than holiness. Well, pastor, is it a sin to be rich? No, it's not a sin to be rich. Well, what is this describing? Well, it all kind of depends, doesn't it? Here's the third thing. That wealth was gained from the very corruption that is growing inside the empire. They're profiting, okay? They're profiting from the corrupt system. The result is, this is now a dwelling place for demons, a whole joint. It may look good, may look successful, may be sexy. It's demonic. This whole nation is a haunt for every kind of unclean thing. And when you see this vision of the next great civilization lying in a coffin, you need to recognize this is where the disease started. This is the reason for judgment. And for that reason, there will be retribution in judgment. John goes on in verse 5, For her sins are heaped high as heaven, and God has remembered her iniquities. Pay her back as she herself has paid back others. That's the language of exchange. We're going to come back to that in just a moment. And repay her double for her deeds. Mix a double portion for her in the cup she mixed. And she glorified herself and lived in luxury. So give her like a measure of torment and suffering. This is something that we call retribution theology. It is a concept found all through Scripture. If you live a life of blessing, you will, generally speaking, be blessed. If you live a life of cursing others, You live life under a curse, God will curse. And the reason for that is because God is a God of justice. Yes, God is love. 1 John 4, couldn't be plainer. But love is not God. We don't use our cheap, 
veneer-covered understandings of love to judge God. God defines love for us. That's how it works. Because he is love. We say, Where's the love? Yes, God is love. Love is not God. God is full of grace. That doesn't mean he sweeps stuff under the rug. This is how we get these, these just dirt cheap imitations of the gospel even within our churches just come down come forward and and pray this prefabricated prayer after me and and sign this card and at some point later we'll get you wet back here and and then you got your ticket punch you are going to heaven no matter how mean you are no matter how much you sin no matter you can just live however you want because all you really got to do is just say jesus i'm sorry would you forgive me and then you just keep on going cheap grace that's not the gospel. Some of you will go to hell believing that. The gospel is not just a set to a set of axioms and then you go to heaven. The gospel is you are separated from God by your sin, but Jesus bore the wrath of God for your sin and gave you his righteousness. And that righteousness gives you a new heart. And a new disposition that turns you toward God and away from your sin. Salvation is not ultimately from hell. It is from your sin. And if you're not saved from your sin, you will not be saved from hell. That, that's the gospel. So let's not water this down into some cheap nonsense. God's justice demands that people still in their sins go to hell. That's mean, is it? Really? I mean, let's, let's imagine. Before we get all emotional in our reactions, let's imagine for a moment that we're in a courtroom and there's a mass murderer rapist running around the country. Let's imagine that your sister or your wife or your daughter was one of his victims. Law enforcement finally catch up with him, arrest him, court is held. There's a long line of witnesses and victims that line up. All of their stories match. There is irrefutable, including damning DNA evidence. There is no doubt. This is the man who committed all these atrocities. He is guilty. So little doubt is there, in fact, that the jury returns back to their place in the courtroom in less than five minutes, unanimously declaring him to be guilty. Now imagine that the judge says, well... I understand that all the proper proceedings have taken place, but I'm, I'm dismissing this case because he did some community service, and he did some good stuff. You know, he worked in a boy's home, and he went to church, and I, he, we've got his tithing record, and all that looks really good. And so, so I'm, I'm going to show him some grace. I'm going to show him some grace. <laughs> I, it's time for an impeachment hearing, don't you think? Yeah. So why do we put that same kind of convoluted logic on God? Show me some grace. It's because we, none of us would just out and out say it because we know it's ridiculous how it's saying, I don't want a just God. I want an unjust God. But, but here's the reality. We want a cheap version of grace for ourselves and justice for other people. It's precisely how we come to a ridiculous conclusion like, well, there may be a hell, but God would never send me there. No way in the world me and Hitler end up in the same place. No way. We forget Hitler ain't the standard. The standard is an unspeakably righteous, perfect, pure, holy God who in this context in Revelation 18, his patience has completely run out with all of human civilization whose very nature stands opposed to that. Retribution is not unjust, especially not when it comes from the hand of God. It is righteous. It is good. It is necessary in order to get to the hope. Yes, it's hard. Yes, it's awful. Yes, it brings a lot of sorrow and a lot of tears. Even, even in the mind of God, you know, Ezekiel says that. He copies God's voice in his prophecy. He says, of, of the Lord, he says, I take no pleasure in the death of the wicked, but that he would repent. But that's the standard. And so that's how it comes. Retribution, one way or another, is coming. Either your sins are absorbed in the cross or they're going to be required at your hands. And if they're required at your hands, it's going to take you the rest of eternity to pay that debt off. 
That's the teaching here. Now, thirdly, John tells us there are specific recipients of this judgment. Verse 9, and the kings of the earth who committed sexual immorality and lived in luxury with her will weep and wail over her when they see the smoke of her burning. They will stand far off in fear of her torment and say, alas, alas, you, you great city, you mighty city Babylon, for in a single hour your judgment has come. Have you ever seen that level of sorrow at a funeral? Someone just collapses over the body. That's what's happening. And, and the people doing it are the kings of the earth who benefited off of the sex, the power, and the money. They benefited off of the wickedness, off of this civilization. And so now what they're doing is they're weeping over the death of corruption because corruption is what they profited from. See, it's, it's, does this sound harsh? That God says, that action reveals these people for who they really are. It exposes them as the just objects of my judgment. That, that kind of sounds harsh, doesn't it? Wait, you, you cried at their funeral? Oh, that tells me everything I need to know about you. How wicked your heart is. But see, that's, that's eventually where we're headed here. That's where Rome was headed. And so the Lord is sending a warning to his church. You have a choice of whether whenever that funeral of this civilization you're living under comes, your primary reaction will be sorrow or joy, and your response will reveal your own hearts. And there are consequences to that. And then the result of judgment is given to us in these last 13 verses. So as a whole, verses 11 to 24, that's the rest of the passage. But I think the result of this judgment, even without reading the whole thing, is best captured in verse 14. It says, the fruit for which your soul longed has gone from you, and all your delicacies and your splendors are lost to you, never to be found again. This is a picture of the business community coming around, and they're mourning the ruin. And if you, if you, this afternoon, just look at this. Look at it with your family. Just study this text next week when you're in your small groups. In, in greater detail. And, and you see, first of all, the loss of commodities. There, there's mention of stone and fabric and grain and flour. Then there's mention of the loss of goods to trade, because if you know very well, if this is economics 101, right? If there's no commodities, you can't make any goods. So there, there's mention there, ornaments, decoration. Then there's loss of services, right? No more barista to make your Starbucks for you. No more waiter to bring your Mai Tai. No more HVAC technician coming in in July to make you cool. In the middle of summer. No, not, not there. Why is that? Well, in, in Rome, it's because largely this environment existed because of slave labor. And so in retribution, the Lord says, okay, I'm taking away all of your human resources. No more workforce to do your bidding. I mean, we, sometimes in, in cycles of human history, we experience a little bit of this. All right? Just a taste of it. I mean, I'm like the rest of y'all. I'm ready for gas. Get back $2 a gallon. Amen? Yeah. I don't like that any better than you do. It's just a taste. We haven't felt judgment. We haven't felt pain compared to what this empire eventually felt. If you, just imagine this with me right now, all right? Because we live, we live in a globalized society. Everything's interconnected. So imagine we'll be in New York City, London, Hong Kong, Tokyo, Beijing, every single market, as simultaneously as it can on a spinning earth, just bottoms out, just tanks out, all in the same day. Nearly every form of currency in the world rendered worthless. Malls empty out, shops close up, scarcity starts to mark the whole world as an expression of God's ultimate judgment. That's what's happening to Rome. That's what's about to happen to Rome. The message here is God's patience has run out with this empire, and God is saying to the empire, I'm taking it all away from you. I'm taking it away. It's done. The result? Well, listen to these words. They're not going to be on the screen, but just listen. Verse 21, then a mighty angel took up a stone like a great millstone and threw it into the sea, saying, so will Babylon, the great city, be thrown down with violence and will be found no more. No record of her. She is gone forever. That happened to Rome, did it not? Verse 22, the sound of her harpist, musicians, flute players, trumpeters, he goes on. Basically, all celebration of her ceases 
Verse 23, her light and lamp goes out, which means the values and the influence that she exported all over the world. All right, I talked about this a little bit last week when I, I gave you that example of the National Mall. When, you, when you're standing anywhere on the Capitol grounds, you're looking at Roman architecture. You're, you're looking at something that was given to us by this empire. That's how far and wide her influence spread. But for almost 2,000 years, she's not been able to spread it because she hasn't existed. That's what it means by her light will go out. Her, her lamp will go out. Verse 24, and in her was found the blood of prophets and of saints and of all who have been slain on the earth. No redemption for her. She's passed the point of no return. I'm not bringing her back. God, it, it's helpful for us to realize as people who follow Jesus, God saves souls. God does not save nation states. Jesus did not die for America or for Rome or for any other collective republic or empire. And in a fallen world, each one of these will ultimately serve the beast. All sides will turn on God's people. I've said that before here. So that's, the, that's the problem. I mean, I love you guys, but some of you think one party is your friend and the other one is your enemy, and you're going to be blindsided or sucked into a false religion. All right? Eventually, martyrs are the result. And here's the promise of God that, that really should make us shudder, given where we are 2,000 years later. Verse 24, And in her was found the blood of the prophets and of saints, and of all who have been slain on the earth. God is saying to the Roman Empire, I'm going to cause you to lay down in the very blood that you have spilled. I, I, I love living where I live. If you, any of you who know where I live, you know, you got the, you, if you pass by on the bypass, you can, you can see my home up on the hill. And unless it's a windy day like today or it's raining, you'll see two flags flying. One is the American and one is the West Virginia flag. I love this place. I love these people. If at some point in my lifetime it all goes to pot, I will mourn with the rest of you. But I also have to be honest. See, we, we, we have, again, this is a study in extremes. We, we live in a, in a nation right now. One side just wants to block everything bad out that we've ever done and talk about how wonderful and virtuous and God-sent we are. And the other side just wants to talk about how oppressive and how horrible we are. And the truth is, this one, just like every other empire that came before it, is made up of human beings who are created in God's image and fallen. So you're going to see both. You're going to see both. And so we are forced by this text to think for a moment the displacement of hundreds of thousands of Native Americans, the willful, deceptive destruction of indigenous tribes, our brothers and sisters of color from enslavement to sharecropping to Jim Crow the receiving end of billy sticks and fire hoses and guns and nooses in my native south. 62 million unborn children who since 1973 we have collectively as a country said it's okay to kill for pretty much any reason. All this stuff built up over 400 years of history and I look around and go, where's the judgment? Where is it? Like, it, we're still living pretty dang large here after all of that. Where's the judgment? And then I remember the Lord is long-suffering and slow to anger. And conversely, he rarely judges quickly. He stores it up. And then it gets released. And I start to shudder. And I start to tremble. Because I think of the same immovable righteousness and holiness that he has revealed of himself here. And then I look at people that I love and I think, it's coming. Do not be deceived. 
do not get sucked in to one narrative or the other. Believe what God has revealed about himself. It's not wrong to be an American. Thankfulness for where you are and where you live is the essence of patriotism. I am profoundly thankful. I've talked to you about that the last couple of weeks. And Jesus prayed, don't take them out, but keep them from the evil one. Here, here is my call and yours in this present moment as we look back on a moment 2,000 years ago. You can be in it. You cannot be of it. That's what it means. You had better separate yourself as best you can from this evil or you will share in its fate and that fate's coming. Just It will befall every empire, every civilization that rises and falls under the sovereign hand of God. So let me give you some practical stuff as we close here. What's that look like for us? Because the sins of Babylon involve leaving God out of the equation. Sensuality, injustice, worship of material goods, propensity toward violence, deception, greed, and at the heart of all of it was idolatry. So let me give you just some really practical ways to avoid that. Okay, here's, here's the first one. Value people over products. Human beings bear the image of God. Okay, so when, when humanity becomes just another product, okay, and this is something Pastor Chris and I have talked about. There's some curriculum that's being developed right now with an organization that I have been working with that will be dropped at some point in the coming months in the middle either of our Wednesday night or some other manner, we're going to expose our teenagers to it so that they and, frankly, our adults also need to be aware of what social media is doing to us, what it's doing to our minds, the way it is corrupting our thinking, the way it is destroying our relationship, the way it is tearing at the fabric of national unity, the way it seeks to supplant growing as a disciple with all the nonsense and the outrage, and the egos, right? What happens in the middle of that? Your fellow human beings just become a product. And when you view humanity as no more than a product, you're viewing human beings the same way the beast does. We, we have got to change that focus, right? If you can look at anybody on this planet and see anything about them First, other than the fact that they bear the image of God, something about your view is perverted. Value people over products. Number two, check your pride. That, that's where a lot of this starts. Can we just be honest? I have to be right. All this has to tie together. I got to have it all figured out. I got to win the argument. I got to get one over. I got to own the libs. I, yeah. You know what's at the heart of that? Same godless satanic nonsense that was at the heart of those who built the Tower of Babel. I want to make a name for myself. That's pride. Make a name for myself. Watch yourself in that. In fact, read Genesis 11. Read the end of that story. I don't want that to be the end of your story. Number three, think and do what is right, no matter the cost. What is right? Yeah. Not, not what do I think? How do I get it over? How do I win? How do I? It, what's the right thing to do? And it is going to cost you. It, it, sometimes dearly. Sometimes dearly. Number four, conduct business under God's moral framework. I'm going to say something else here that's about as popular as a belch in a crowded elevator. And you, you don't have to agree with me here on the first part, but I'm going to tell you, it's, it, we, we've gotten to the point where we worship systems more than we worship God. Systems of ideology, systems of philosophy, and nothing is greater evidence of this than when we start talking economic theory. I love capitalism. I love what it, what, what it does around the world. But I'm going to tell you something. Our nation right now is blurring the lines between Adam Smith and Ayn Rand in a way that is dangerous. People that are supposedly Christian swallowing 
the worldview of an atheist to demonstrate what should be or what, what shouldn't be. That when the free market is used for nothing more than turning a profit that leverages the base desires of people, that does nothing but speed up the destruction of civilization. You're like, well, then is capital? No, it's, capital is not the problem. It's the way sinful human beings try to pull those levers. There is an inherent goodness in profit. There are other people in this room that need to hear that. Turning a profit is not evil. Do you work a job? Well, yeah. Do they pay you? Yeah. You know where that came from? No. Of course you don't. Profit. Right? It's not evil. There, there's goodness in that. There's inherent goodness in hard labor in, in bringing humanity to flourish with the resources we spend and invest. But, but that, that inherent goodness can be corrupted to the point that it serves the beast. Not everything capitalistic is good. Think like a Christian. Think like someone who has taken all of Scripture and understands this. And above all, make the kingdom of God your highest value. Because that kingdom, and we've seen it here, we see, you remember recapitulation? Revelation tells you the same story over and over and over again. So it tells you one, you think you're to the end of it, then you start back over at the beginning. This is another one of those times, and you're seeing it again. Reminds me of Dwight L. Moody, who was doing a, a series of services one night. I don't remember the city, and he kept using the exact same text, and his, his emphasis was repent and believe the gospel, repent and believe the gospel. And the people that invited him in called a meeting, and they said, when are you going to preach on a different text? And he said, when you obey the first one. Right? This is revelation. Why does he keep bringing this up? Probably because it's always been a problem. Probably because human beings have always been prone to be attracted to these sort of things. 2,000 years ago, that was the reality. 2,000 years later, this is the reality. And so the Lord keeps repeating himself because he loves you. He loves me. The kingdom of God is our highest value. We saw it seven chapters earlier. The kingdom of this world will become the kingdom of our Lord and his Christ. And the graphic picture we're given today is the future. It's not just the past. It is the future when every great civilization will lie in a coffin and your heart and mine will struggle between lament and joy. And the question is, which one of those dispositions is going to carry the day for you? Your answer to that question reveals whether you're living in obedience to the command in verse 4. Come out of her. Come out of her. Now, here's the hope. Right? You ready for some hope? We are living pretty dang large, aren't we? Come on. We're living pretty dang large. I know gas is $4 a gallon. I know inflation's out. I know there's stuff like But we, we can complain about it without getting arrested. That's better than a lot of other countries, right? Yeah, most of us still got some spare money in our pockets. Who's taking a vacation this summer? Let me see your hands. Let me see it. Hold them up. Hold them up high. Come on. Don't lie to me. Get them hands up. All right. Now keep them up. Keep them up. Now look around. Yeah, don't tell me we're persecuted. You're going to be able to get away? I'm going to do one too. I'm getting away twice. All right. It, it's, it's good. We, we can enjoy it. How many of you just in the last week have had a phenomenal meal, drank some really good wine, enjoyed life with your family, right? See, see, that's the part of our experience here on the planet that leans toward lament when we think about the end of a civilization that's provided us that. Here's the hope. We ain't seen nothing yet. Something better is coming. Something far better is coming. And the Lord is asking you, will you give up the little kind of cheap imitation jewelry that you're playing with right now so I can give you a real string of pearls? We, are, are you, are you going to be okay? That's one thing we'll get into when, when we get later into the, toward the end of Revelation. How you die matters. If you die crying because of all the things you're going to leave behind without looking forward. And, it, and I know you, you're like, Pastor, you're 50, you're healthy. Who are you to be standing up there? Granted. Granted. But let's read the scriptures together. What does it say? To live as Christ. This life can be good. To die is gain, okay? 
Yeah, 20 years from now, who knows, maybe less, depending on what I do with bacon. I might struggle with that a little bit. But it's still true. It's still true. That's your hope, brothers and sisters. I'm not telling you not to enjoy the life that God has given you. I'm telling you, look forward to a better one so that when this one has its funeral held, the primary disposition of your soul is joy, not because you hate where you live, but because you love the better country that God has promised you. And there's only one way to get there. That's it. Come out of her. Be in it. Don't be of it. This is something you should want to do. Jesus gives you a way to do that. He bled for your sins. He rose from the dead. He ascended to the Father, and he waits. He waits for you to turn from your sin. And he waits for you to turn to him. And he waits for you to put all of your faith in what he did. He waits for you to admit there's no amount of works I can do. There's no leaf I can turn over. There's no 12-step program I can do that's going to get me to where I need to be relative to my relationship with God. The only thing I can do is repent and believe the gospel. Maybe you need to do that today. In just a moment, there are going to be men and women under these crosses wearing lanyards. Man, how they would love to share with you what it means to follow Jesus and to come out from her a better country is coming and i told you didn't i at the beginning of this message this is the last of the worst y'all want to come back next week it gets better it gets better you've never seen hope like you're going to see in these coming weeks john's, john's going to pull back one final curtain you have never in your life seen such unveiled glory as this god god offers it to you through the person and the work of Jesus. Run and get it today. Father, thank you for the, the message that speaks bluntly, even offensively to us sometimes, but does so out of a love that shocks our souls into reality. And I pray for your people today, Lord. May we look forward to that better country while we continue to enjoy the good gifts that you have given us in this life. And may the primary disposition of our soul be joy, Joy. Lord, I can't think of anything more countercultural today than joy. Fill the hearts of your people with that. And if there's anyone here today who is not one of your people, Lord, may your spirit just draw them irresistibly to the foot of the cross today. May they turn from their sins, believe in you, and may today be the day they find that joy. I pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen. Stand with me. Let's honor the Lord in the way we obey him now as we stand and as we sing. Hi, everybody. Pastor Joel here, and I am so glad you stopped by. I pray this podcast helps you in your walk with God. And if you're listening with questions about faith of any sort, God is not afraid of those questions, and neither are we. Join us any Sunday morning at 9 o'clock or 11 o'clock in the morning. If you're new to our area and looking for a church home, I hope we'll see you soon and have the opportunity to welcome you properly and personally through our doors. And if you live in the tri-state area, but you're already a part of one of the other phenomenal church families here, I pray this podcast has been a great addition to the primary teaching you already received from your local pastor and that you've been better equipped to serve your own church family. So let's all go make Jesus famous this week. Share his love every chance you get until we meet again. And God bless you.